Hi everyone, welcome to Honey I'm Home, Australia's first ever beekeeping podcast for anyone looking to start their first apiary or just wanting to learn more around beekeeping. Uh, today we are very privileged uh, to be talking to the founder of Flowhive, uh, Cedar Anderson, and I know for in particular <laughs> my my co-host Ben is very excited. Oh my god, it's a fanboy moment! I'm <laughs> telling you, Joy, I'm very excited. And uh, interestingly enough, we are we are sitting in the Flowhive HQ on on a beautiful <laughs> hill, and uh, digitally joining us uh, is, is Cedar from uh, from a little holiday he's taking as well. So a bit of an unusual one for us. But he's, he's very socially distant at the moment. He's <laughs> yeah. very sensible uh, with things going on. I think maybe uh, when Monique told him that I was a fanboy, he got scared away. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Tell him I'm away. Yeah. I'm just just down in the front paddock. Thank you for having me. I'll get things kicked off. Cedar, this is probably a question you've answered a few times, but for the sake of our listeners, I was wondering if you could give us a quick rundown of your role in Flowhive and uh, you know what, what your company's doing in the beekeeping space at the moment. So Flowhive was born out of actually to solve a problem that I had personally. So my role is the inventor of the product and also the founder CEO of the company. So I'm still there, you know, knee deep in it and uh, working hard and really inspired by what's going on in the world with beekeeping and the community that's formed around our invention and beyond. Oh, that's cool. So look, I I just best mention this now. I was a foundation supporter way back in, I think it was, I was telling John the way up here, I believe you started in Kickstarter and then you pivoted to Indiegogo with something to do with currency. Um, I, I was just wondering if you could describe what that, uh, you know, how that all felt when it really launched off, you know, literally overnight. Yeah, that was an interesting um, moment, actually. So we we put in the hard yards of inventing the product and then it's like, how are we going to get it to market? And I kept coming back to this, this uh, crowdfunding idea because I'd seen I've seen the way people could have an idea and put it out there and having no funds at all, like we didn't have any, it seemed like a great way to get started. And so we'd spent a long time making a video and my sister had been putting in the effort there. She'd been studying at the local film school and over about a year, I think we made that video because we kept going to use the invention and the prototype we were making and it wouldn't work or it <laughs> break or whatever. And um, actually the moment that we did get it working, she wasn't there to film it, but luckily we had a few few cameras ourselves and managed to, to catch that moment of the first <laughs> jar of honey that was coming out. So there we were with this video we made, which is an important part of crowdfunding. And we had signed up to Kickstarter because that was the biggest crowdfunding platform. And uh, we, we dropped this video on Facebook that just basically said, here's what we've invented. If you're interested, put your email in here. And we just got this avalanche. It was just insane. The really? amount, amount of people we got. They had 70,000 people sign up to our email list in, in that week. Wow. And um, so then we were in this position where we clearly put our invention out there. And we had our site set on Kickstarter. But what happened was Indiegogo saw the groundswell of people and interest. In the <laughs> they poached you. <laughs> yeah, they poached us. They came knocking and said, hey, look, you know, we can probably do a few things for you that Kickstarter can't. And we're like, okay, we're, we're, listen <laughs> we're listening. 
and this is like the day before, right? Yeah. And um, and and then what happened internally is had a couple of friends working for us, and, and one of them still does. It was Sadi and Yari, and Yari was doing all the website tech, and Sadi was doing all the social media stuff. So we'd gotten that far. Our team had grown to a couple uh, for launch, and internally, what happened was Sadi being so organised. Um, <laughs> Oh, actually, it was Yari being so organized. He, he wrote an email saying, hey, everybody, I know you're all excited, but we've swapped <laughs> to Indiegogo. And he sent that just to, to us three, right? Yeah. He sent that email saying, we've swapped to Indiegogo as, as a sort of a, a template in case we needed to make that choice. And, <laughs> and then Sadie went, oh, wow, we've already done it. Quick, I better update social media. So the yeah. decision yeah. was made without us even making it <laughs> and and there we were the day before going radio that decision's made let's swap over but the reason why it was good to swap was because the majority of our audience we could tell from the stats was in the usa yeah and it made sense to sell in us dollars and that's one thing we couldn't do on kickstarter yeah right and, and um so that that was a, that was a funny little piece of piece of the puzzle there so then I spent all night. I actually didn't sleep one wink swapping all the page <laughs> over Indiegogo. We got to the next day and um, we're trying to activate the page and it won't activate. And we're like, oh, okay, payment details. Hang on a second. Oh, well, just put in the personal PayPal account. <laughs> and, um, and away. <laughs> then it was this crazy kind of um, thing that happened where we were actually at my grandfather's place in Canberra, thinking that we'd need to get close to somewhere where the media could get to us rather than out in the hills where we live. Yeah. And, and we'd, we'd um, set up his hive and we'd actually shipped uh, the flow hive frames in because he didn't have any full at his place and put them <laughs> on the hive. And we had, um, we had the ABC around and I was there pressing go on the, on the uh, yep. phone to start the page. While the ABC was interviewing, doing an us. interview, yeah, really. Yeah. Now I remember this, and then as as the interview is going, it's like he's, your phone starts going off. Yeah, you start looking at your phone, hit the goal, hit the goal, yeah. And someone in the background saying, "Hey, we've hit target," and I picked up the phone and walked off mid interview. <laughs> <laughs> that was what they showed on the TV. Yeah. <laughs> that big of a success, it was huge. Massive. Yeah, and thank you so much for being a founding supporter. It was absolutely crazy that day with just an avalanche of interest, and and you know, uh, two hours later we hit a million dollars, which was a world crowdfunding record for the speed at which to to reach those kind of numbers. And no. um, yeah, it was was incredible. And with that kind of speed, was it hard to go from you know and and a genuine inventor and you know keeper of bees to kind of CEO you know literally in a few minutes like have you found that transition or maybe that that hybrid role of you know obviously caring deeply about what you do but also you know managing a couple of million bucks they're, they're very different skill sets look it, it is and it was a really interesting transition for me because I grew up um, on a community like business is the evil of the world you know, that kind of mentality, which I think a lot of us do grow up with. And for the most part, it's quite correct. Yeah. And, and, um, and so I had to kind of work through that and go, well, hang on a second. There is companies doing good things in the world. If we want to get this invention off the ground and see it out there and see how hard work 
um, come to fruition, then we need to get past that. We need to yeah. be okay. And, and so let's build a, a business that has a positive impact in the world it, it, um, and be one of the companies that are leading the way in, in what we're doing there. So from that kind of thinking, we we're able then to, I guess, make a start in the business world and the start was bigger than we imagined yeah. um, from, from square one. It was a prop. It was a proper launch. It was um. It was insane. I remember talking. Anyway, look, you don't need to thank me for being a foundation supporter. I need to thank you. You've you've started this passion in bees. Without that invention and that um, I don't know. There was something in me that you know you just tick those boxes and away we went. But look, I was I was wondering, and I am interested. Of, I know that um for Jai's sake, one of the things that's out there already. Uh, the impetus for the, you know, the invention came from your brother getting uh, lit up by bees, for lack of a better phrase. Uh, what were the what were the styles of hives that you'd been running um, within your family, and uh, you know, maybe uh, tell us that story around, uh, you know, the the catalyst for 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 that curious um, inventive streak that you uh, went and designed the flow frames around. So I guess beekeeping was a family tradition. My grandfather kept bees and there's plenty of fond moments on his farm, collecting the yellow box honey and uh, doing the whole processing in the conventional way. And we had beehives as well when we were, uh, when we were young and we used to go through the process. Our hive was pretty um, aggressive to say the least and would end up covered in stings. And we only had kind of homemade bales that my, <laughs> my grandmother had made and would gaff tape on gloves and you know get down there and um do our best to get the honey without getting too many stings but often would get would get a lot and yeah. um so as as a young kid it was more on that that small hobbyist scale and then come my early 20s i started a a small semi-commercial library just selling buckets of honey to the local shops and you know, I had the I had the nine frame radial centrifuge, and in the shed we lived in, we had a, a processing setup, which was you know pretty pretty um pretty small. So you've just got the bench and the hot knife, and and you go and you rip the boxes off the hives and, and get all the bees out. And again, I was I was just uh, running thirty or forty hives then, and but. It was such a lot of work and such a disturbance to the bees. I was like, there has to be a better way. This is taking me, taking me all weekend to get some honey to sell to the shops. Yeah. The bees don't particularly like it. They're clearly telling me that. Um, <laughs> how about we just design a thing so you turn a tap and the honey drains straight out? So that was, that was where it came from. And, uh, didn't realize that it'd be 10 years before we actually made it work, but it was a lot of fun prototyping it and trying different things and failing and trying other things and failing. And, um, it wasn't, it wasn't a, a full-time job and it couldn't be really because it takes sometimes three, four, five months to really know whether the bees prototype. Are with the prototype. So it's this long winded thing. It's not like inventing a kettle where, okay, I've got it. It works. It's, it's, <laughs> It's like this, and then even when you've got it working, you have to test it on multiple colonies to make sure that perhaps mm. one colony doesn't like it. And you know, so it was this um, long, long journey from there. But the idea came from just wishing there was a better way. 
And, and in terms of your own approach to kind of invention or prototyping or design, you know, what, what kind of led you to those pieces? Because, you know, it's a fairly, you know, it's a, it's a real leap in, in mm. kind of engineering because no, no one else had cracked it. Not to, no pun intended, nah. but, um, <laughs> but, uh, like had you been designing and working on other things, you know, are you just really handy or where, where did that come from? I guess I grew up with farm skills just uh, to, to fix machinery. My dad was always fixing everything, be it cars and pulling gearboxes in and out, plumbing, uh, electrics, um, solar powered system, t- turbine in the creek, a pelting <laughs> wheel with water flowing from, from the ridge. So it was that kind of upbringing where I learned from my father, I guess, just and naturally interested in, in fixing things and working things out. And the only alternative schooling I did was the first year of schooling where I went to this uh, great community school where kindergarten was uh, making, making uh, a firework to, to measure the speed of sound with. So, uh, <laughs> we got down there and ground up the charcoal and the saltpeter and the, and the, um, the sulfur, made a firework, stuck it out in the paddock, measured the distance, timed between when the tin went up in the air, that was the firework was underneath, and when we heard the bang, and we like that's it, got the speed of sound. They were thinking, yeah, yeah, I got, I've got this. And <laughs> so I guess there was around the community a kind of um, a, a, a different way to to educate children, and I think that did me well and gave me this kind of, uh, I guess, confidence and competence to just have a go at stuff and work yeah. it out. No, and awesome. I think another point is my father didn't, particularly my father, didn't do criticism. And so it was sort of like have a go and see. And if, you, if it didn't work, it didn't matter. And you weren't told it wasn't going to work before you started. You were yeah. just allowed, allowed to have a go. Yeah. And, it, and that, that meant that, you know, we built our own go-kart to drive to school on. It was down a rough four-wheel drive track, so we'd have have um, four or five of us on this machine that was kind of parts of an old scythe mower, a couple of bicycles joined together, car inner tubes strapped over for suspension, <laughs> and, you know, and, and a little trailer behind. And we would ride this thing. It had a little Honda motor that would never stop, and away we went. <laughs> so um, so um, I was kind of... It was mechanics, it was plumbing, it was electrics. Everything was just kind of a natural part of life. And from that, I think um, the creativity was was born to just try and, and make things and see if you can. Yeah, awesome. I might be going a little too technical, but I, I, I'm just I'm curious – the Langstroth design, did you ever have any other prototypes? Did you ever run any other types of hives? Was it always the Langstroth uh, hive design that you were trying to fit the frames to? It was the Langstroth. So thank you, getting back to the question. So Langstroth is where, where what we had when we were kids. It's what my grandfather had and and it's what we ran as a small commercial apiary. So... So Langstroth was, was really what we were working on all the way. I, I, did, um, I did set up a top bar hive at one point, just curious, but I haven't really, I didn't really go down that road. Yeah. So, um, 
So, yeah, it's all been Langstroth, my experience. It's always still time, Cedar. You've got plenty of time. Yeah. <laughs> and, and, you know, I designed little boxes that could go onto top bar hives that the flow frames could join onto and that kind of thing. I yeah. thought there'd be a bit more people experimenting with the flow frames because we made them modular and you can change the size and whatnot. Yeah. Um, but uh, I've seen just a limited amount of that in the world. Most people just want a done-for-year solution. Thank you very much. It's... um. It's interesting you say that. I'm a I'm a teacher in my um I guess my real role, not a podcaster, <laughs> but it's 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 one of those things that, like you mentioned, you know your upbringing that you try and foster. It's really hard. Like it's a getting the kids to see things from a different perspective. And like you said, most people are quite happy with plug and play, particularly when it is such an innovative design to begin with. Um, look, um, you know I I can't claim to have any solutions for you there, but I think I think it might be uh the kids that you know, that are, that are out there that are, you know, mucking around with these things that, you know, they might have the solution for the old, uh, maybe a coffin hive or something. There's some reappropriation of some, uh, wood. That sounds really morbid. Yeah. Sorry. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It's not a bad idea because you can hold the square shape and just, yeah. just go, go horizontal. Yeah. And it certainly thought about doing that. There's disadvantages and disadvantages for sure. Yeah. You're right. You're I'll, I'll hog the interview if I keep asking the question. <laughs> That's good. In terms of, um, you know, as you were creating the design, um, were there any big milestones, you know, and, and maybe first just to kind of, because not everyone who's listening, you know, might might have seen the flow hive. Do you, do you want to quickly uh, discuss what makes it so revolutionary and then maybe some of the milestones that got it to that point? So basically the way you, extract conventionally if you're unfamiliar with that is you get in your bee suit you get out the smoker you take the hive apart you if you're on a commercial scale you use a leaf blower to blow the bees out of the box if you're if you're on a small scale you usually take the frames out put them in some tubs brush all the bees off take them to a processing shed cut the wax capping with a hot knife put those frames into a centrifuge spin it out and, but not even there. This is like halfway. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and and then um, you know once you've done a whole lot of spinning, which yeah. takes takes the uncapping and spinning takes quite a bit of time. Um, then you've got a mixture of of honey and and a bit of wax and a bit of bee bits and things in your extractor. So it needs a, a filtration phase after that. Then you've got to. Uh, take all those frames back to the hives again, try and remember which hives they went in so you're not spreading disease around and, um, and then clean up all the mess. And if, if anything like me, it takes you a while to clean up all the mess and then you get in more of a mess because, uh, you know, the, the, um, <laughs> the, the, the ants have come to get the honey spills in the shed and you've left the um, window open and I know the bees are getting in. So that, that's, that's the kind of thing that I used to do. <laughs> and it, well, it's totally valid. And I don't want to say my way is the only way either. Um, we just designed something that was really useful to us and a lot of people love it, but it doesn't mean it's the only way in this world. We need people to do things in all different ways because diversity mm. is, is what keeps things going on the right track. Mm. Um, so, so I think in the beginning we got a bit of criticism saying, no, no, we can't do that. No, no. I like doing it my way. And, and, um, you know, they started just to disruption for disruption, you know, mm. like any disruption in any, yeah, it just happens, you know, you upset the status quo because you've got something new. Yeah. So what we'd write back is, look, 
anyway you want to look after your bees and harvest your honey is great <laughs> we love all types of beekeeping and they yeah. go oh Oh, okay. Then. <laughs> yeah. I guess that's okay then. Yeah. <laughs> We're not get, bursting get my, into yeah. your backyard and changing the way you do it. Yeah. Get off my soapbox. You don't, you, you don't have to. Um, but if you want to, here yeah. it is. <laughs> <laughs> and and so, what was the flow hive design like? What 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 cuts the you know the steps the, the steps? down down to like three? Mm. Yeah. Yeah. So so basically, from a user point of view. You're, you've got your colony going great. You've looked after your bees. They've, they've filled all the frames out in the bottom box. You go along and put your flow hive super on, which is the, the next box up. And then the bees go through a process of cutting those frames in wax and completing the cells. So the cells are a partially formed honeycomb matrix. The bees complete that. They draw their wax out further. They start storing nectar in the cells like they do with any honeycomb and going through that process of dewatering. Now, when they've got the honey moisture content below 20%, they'll put a wax capping over the top of the frame. And that's when the bees decided that that honey is ready to keep on the shelf because the moisture content is low enough. And that's when it's also ready for harvesting if there's enough honey for you to harvest and share in the amazing spoils that the bees produce. So you come from the outside of the hive and you look in the windows. There's a rear window where you get a cross-sectional view where you can watch the bees deposit their nectar with their tongues and you can watch them cap it. And you can get a pretty good idea when that frame is ready to harvest. And you can also look in the side windows and look at the capping they've put over those frames too. Generally bees start by filling the frames from the center of the hive and moving outwards. And so you come along and look in the windows and go, wow, there's a nice frame or two ready for harvest. Come along with a, a what looks like a big Allen key, insert it into the top of the frame and turn it. And the honey comes out a, a the bottom of the frame. You put a little tube in, into your jar, and it's ready for the table. So it's good, really good for a tap. It's mm. like, yeah. It is a bit like a tap. And it's this one thing we didn't sort of realize is it's become a, a really kind of beautiful experience for, for you to share with your friends and your family yeah. where you can sit there filling up jars of honey and marveling at the bees and what an amazing job they do as they continue to fly in and out the front of the hive. And it's, to me, that's a, that's a really beautiful thing. And I never get sick of watching honey yeah. just pour out and it doesn't need any filtering. It's just ready to go. And, and that's purely like the, the and that's, you know, d design by access. You know, you've given access to, you know, the, the actual honey by actually being able to bypass it through a different part of the hive, correct? Yeah, so it drains to a trough at the bottom and straight out. So the bees yeah. don't um, have access to that. And then what yeah. happens is I imagine the bees are walking over the honeycomb surface and they're like, there's no, no honey under there. It's like a drum skin with, with, with air or something. And they quite quickly start uncapping. Even in, even in, in um, 20 minutes, you can see them start working. And, <laughs> and what they do is they rip all the wax capping off and they recycle it to rebuild the frame again, which is pretty neat. And that's a, that's, um, a pretty cool thing, actually, because the bees do use quite a lot of honey to make wax. So... So when they can recycle that wax on the frame, it's a neat thing. Yeah. 
Um, I'm curious, Cedar. I remember my first uh, honey tapping with my family at home, and I've still got a video of my wife just going ballistic. Can't believe that it worked, kind of thing. When when you did your first honey tapping, um, I wonder. You, you said it's really nice to share, you know, with your friends and family. Do you remember your first honey tapping, and who was it that you shared it with? Oh, absolutely. I I, I remember it clear as a bell. It's like I've been working on this invention for 10 years. <laughs> Did you have nine false alarms before the actual first one and everyone had to come back out nine times? Or uh, Well, it was just me and my dad in the, in the okay. paddock at the time. So we had just a, a what was a conventional Langstroth hive and we'd modified just, just like a quarter of a frame in the top box. And we had some 3D printed parts in there and 3D printing was expensive back then. It was it was a couple of grand for really, one quarter of a frame. And that was a lot when we had no money. So, so um, we were really hoping this thing would work. And we got a spanner on the outside of the hive. And, <laughs> and it turned a cam mechanism. The mechanism oh, wow. changed a bit over time. And inside was a, a cam that moved every, every um, second part would displace it compared to the, the other part. So... It was um, a bit different to how it is now. And then the honey just started pouring out. Yeah. I just couldn't believe it. We're just watching yeah. it going, wow, this works better than we ever dreamed. <laughs> it's just, just filling up. And look, it's all draining out. We thought, you know, we won't have problems where most of the honey would stay in there and only a tiny bit would drain out. But it's just pouring out, filling up the jar. And it was just this kind of euphoric moment in the, in the sunshine where we just, like we've done it, we've done it. You've, you've got to see it, it to believe it. Like you, you watch it on, you know, the Kickstarter or Indiegogo and, you know, I think there was a healthy level of scepticism out there amongst the beekeeping community. I remember when I picked up my first nuke blocks with my Flow Hive um, uh, veil on and, uh, you know, I, I've heard lots of different things about the, the new approach, but, um, you know, sure enough, I remember my wife screaming and jumping up and down the backyard when we, when you know, when it came through with the goods, and you know, the rest is history. It is amazing, isn't it? And it, one other thing we didn't really think about at the time was that you get different flavours from different frames. So it's become such one of the, a major benefit, really, is to get all of these different flavours from one hive. Because sharing honey flavors is such a such a nice thing. I mean, people often ask what my favorite honey is, and I say, well, my favorite thing is to have lots of different flavors to to do taste testing. Yeah, and the conversations that it starts around the table is is amazing. Yeah, that's amazing. Um, uh, just one more question about the flow hive itself. Um, when you which of these, I'm, I'm sitting here, it's a little bit hard on a podcast to describe it, but is there an origin hive in your yard? I've got, there's a lot of flow hive twos I can see uh, sitting around the edge of your uh, workspace, but uh, is your origin hive the first one back at your parents' place? Is it uh, down the road somewhere or have you just upgraded flow hive two was just that much bigger of a step up? In my place, there's a bit of a mixture. There's even some frames that are now six years old in there wow. in the hive and I'm thinking about swapping them out but then again I'm like well shouldn't we leave them there as long as see we can um, to see, see how they go and there's still a few few hive boxes sitting around that have some cutouts for experimentation and little holes drilled in them that I just left there because I like it yeah. to have, have that little piece of history and I've got the 
the original frame that um, that did the magic. Um, and I've got that kept inside, and it's still a still a working prototype. It's a museum piece. I was going to say, is that in a hive somewhere? The camp, the cam design. No, it's uh, just sitting in my um, in the shed that I lived in, and and um, my father and I built the the prototypes in. Yeah. So uh, yeah. I'm not sure. Um, one point I thought I lost it and I lost it for about a year and I was so bummed about it. But it <laughs> oh, that's awesome, mate. Um, what, can, I, can I just do yeah, one, more? one more? Sorry. Um, <laughs> it's just about the community. I mean, th- this is something that I, I mean, you've already mentioned it. Um, you've alluded to it. Something that I never anticipated when I became a beekeeper was the interest that we got from our neighbours and our friends and our family. And then further afield, um, you know, the, from the schools and, and all different things. I, I wonder if there's a, uh, a moment in your history where, you know, you can think about the people that you might have met that, you, you know, you haven't met before. Um, you know, is there anyone that stands out as a, as a moment that, you know, you are, uh, I don't know, is it a bit of a feather in the cap kind of thing? Or is it this podcast? It could be this podcast. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so that... The- community that formed around this invention is amazing and i think when we were working on the invention in the beginning we were working on it to solve a problem and we thought it would be for commercial beekeepers and for that reason there's a big wide slot at the top we can even run it with pneumatics so the the frames are designed to be fully automated if needed we quickly learned as we were starting to show people that the people that wanted it was the was the backyard community more so and the the small scale commercial operators who didn't really need a whole big fancy setup Mm. and just just wanted a small footprint in their backyard you can turn the handle and get honey straight from the hive and so so but what we didn't realize was when we launched it there'd be a community who genuine, genuinely want to care for our world would spring up around the invention. Yeah. And that was so welcome to us as growing up with a, with a quite an environmental background and it was um, really suited our views and values. So we're like, wow, this is great. And then people would write to us and say, I've just converted our whole block into an insecticide free zone. Mm. But it's like, wow, incredible. And it's yeah. become a thread right through our company that means, you know, we're, we're doing more than selling a product. Each hive we send out, we think this is a bit of a, a, um, a window into a world, for, especially for new beekeepers who suddenly realise, well, hang on a second. If they're spraying that onto flowers, um, we better do something about that. And I, I better not do that anymore because that's not good for the bees and I better plant some some habitat over here because there's all these native insects as well. So bees really become this kind of gateway insect Mm. opening up to a a world and, and helping, helping us understand the connection we have to the whole interdependence of, of everything. And that for us, that's what gets us up in the morning and keeps us going. And that's why we, um, like uh, developing products that not only um, are something useful in the world, but also raise funds for habitat regeneration and protection. Yeah, amazing. Awesome. Well, look, I've got one more. I've got a bee joke for you. 
Um, yeah. It's as good as it sounds, I can yeah. promise you. There are, they, we always finish on such a high note. <laughs> what is what do bees wear to the beach? Mm, uh, a bikini. Thank you so much for your time today, Cedar. And uh, look, hopefully we can do this again. Uh, we'd love to follow up and see how we're going. Um, and you know, hopefully we'll do it in person next time. I've got one joke for you. Yeah, go on. And it's a bit risque, like on the podcast. <laughs> but here we go. What's the favourite type of bees in the world? <laughs> I don't, I don't know. know. What's the favourite type of bees? Boobies. <laughs> Very good. Much better than mine. Cedar, thank you so much for your time today. We really appreciate it um, and can't wait to do it again. Thanks, Cedar. Yeah, thank you very much for having me on your show. All right. All right. See, See you, mate. Bye. Bye. See ya.